The following audio is from LifePoint Church, located in O'Fallon, Missouri. For more information about LifePoint Church, visit us online at thelifepointconnection.com. Good morning, I like that. Good morning, LifePoint. There you go. That's it, right on the money. I knew you guys weren't asleep quite yet, and worship was so engaging. I knew you guys couldn't be sleeping too bad. You know, my name is Bill. I'm one of the pastors here at LifePoint. And if this is your first time this morning, or maybe it's your... uh, 264th time. You've been to church almost five years. I'm so glad to have you here. Glad you could be here in this cool air conditioning this morning. Started raining as some of the last people are coming in, and when it's hot like this, it just gets kind of sticky. And so I'm very grateful here to be here more ways than one. You know, today we're beginning our, uh, our new summer series entitled uh, the this, this Psalms of Summer, or Summer in the Psalms, however you want to put it. But we're going to be spending the next two or three months literally looking at some of the psalms that have been written and men who have been reading for for hundreds and hundreds of years. So every week for the rest of the summer, we're going to take a psalm and we're going to dig into that. And the really cool thing about it is is that we're going to give a lot of the men who've been leading here at LifePoint in different ways an opportunity to come up and to be able to share some of this with you. And so uh, next week, Dustin's is going to be on deck, and, and we've got to plan through the summer. But what I want you guys to do is not just to, to, uh, to, to understand what God's saying to us through the Psalms, but I want you to hear the heart behind the men who are going to be speaking to you. Church isn't a one-man show. Church is all of us put together. And God speaks to me just as much as he speaks to you, just as much as he speaks to Eric or Dustin. And so I want you to hear the heart behind these men as they share the word of God with you. So I'm looking very, very much forward to this series this summer. BibleGateway.com. Anybody ever use that? You ever used it before? It's really pretty good. It's got a lot of tools and resources. Out of the top 10 most read books of the Bible through their surveys and stuff, they've, they've figured out that the Psalms is the number one book that people read, followed by Matthew and John, both in the Gospels. And so what I want to do is, is talk just a little bit about the Psalms today before we jump in. Actually, the book of Psalms has 150 different chapters. They were written by a number of different authors over a good period of time. Uh, don't sweat it. We're not covering 150 chapters in the next three months. It took us two months to cover the book of Jonah, and that's only four. <laughs> So we would be here until probably uh, 2026, give or take a few years. So we're not going to do that. King David of Israel wrote many of the Psalms. He didn't write them all, but he wrote many of them. And uh, I would say probably half, but he was the guy that put them all together. He was the one that collected the Psalms. And most of these Psalms contain very valuable insight about life's most challenging struggles. For example, how do you remain godly in times of extreme trial? How do you deal with depression and despair? How do we respond to injustice? Not just with me or with the people I see, but but stuff happens all over the world. How do I respond to that? Seeing the glory and the grandeur of God. Facing death at the end of our life. Why does God allow suffering? Struggling with repentance and forgiveness and mercy 
and the reconciliation of the whole world back to God at some point in time. You see, these are the issues that really have no time frame. They were just as applicable then as they are today. And they're just as applicable today as they were then. These are issues that, that are timeless in nature. We struggle with that because we're human beings. The Psalms themselves are divided into uh, literally five different books. They're not equal necessarily. Book one is chapter one to 42. Book two starts in chapter 43 and goes on. Five of these little sub-books actually make up the book of Psalms. David's mentioned probably at the beginning of at least 73 different Psalms. Now that doesn't mean he, he wrote them, but that at least he's mentioned or that they're about David. Other men, uh, Moses himself wrote Psalm 90. King Solomon wrote Psalm 72 and 127. And so there's a number of men who uh, wrote some of these psalms, and they've been compiled together in what we know of as the psalm. The word psalm actually, in both the Hebrew and the Greek, literally means, and I quote, to play music and to sing to musical accompaniment. That's a long way of saying it's a songbook. I mean, it really is. It's just a songbook. You see, in the Old Testament... When they went to worship, people played instruments. And people sang worship and praise and music to God. A lot like we do today. Although 3,000 years ago, they probably didn't have any real cool guitars or drum set that looked like that. In fact, the melodies were probably a lot different than what we know of today. But the same basic idea. A song is helping, helping us communicate with our heart to God. That's essentially what worship does. I want to worship God, but, but sometimes I lack the words, the articulation to really get to the core of the matter. And sometimes these songs help me express what I'm thinking and what I'm feeling back to God. The book of Psalms is actually what we might call poetry. But unlike English poetry that most of us are familiar with, there's no real rhyme, there's no... Uh, meter or cadence in the writing. We lose almost all of the linguistic beauty simply because of translation. There's a, there, I want to give you an example of that. Uh, one of the old nursery rhymes, you probably learned this years ago, uh, says, Mary had a little lamb, his fleece was white as snow, and everywhere that Mary went, the lamb was sure to go. Can you say that with me? Mary had a little lamb, its fleece was white as snow. And everywhere that Mary went, the lamb was sure to go. It, that's poetry, okay? Alicia, would you translate that in Spanish for me? Oh, there you are. Ooh, boy, that loses a lot. That, lo that loses a lot in translation, doesn't it? You see, that's what happened when we translated the Psalms into English or Spanish or, or Portuguese or Polish. We lost a lot of the beauty, but the truth, though, still remains. One of the major themes in the entire book, the Psalms, is simply an awareness of God's presence in everyday life for everyday people. You see, God was not just a doctrinal issue that was studied, like sometimes we do under a microscope. That was not the case. It was God was someone, capital S, Someone who is, who is intimately, intimately interested in, in who we are and what we do. 
in taking this journey of life with us. Most of the Psalms originated by articulating the guttural cries of the heart. You know, Amy Grant, I don't know if you guys remember Amy. She was, wrote some stuff back in the late 70s, early 80s. Uh, she's old like I am now. Uh, but she wrote a song entitled, It's Not a Song. And one of the phrases has, has captured my heart, and it's been there for many years. She said, a song is not a song till it comes from the heart. She said, a song is not a song until it tears you apart. That's why our heart often resonates with a certain song. Because whoever wrote that song, whether it's country and you lost your wife and your dog and your truck, (laughs) it's all originated from a broken heart. And that's why it often means so much, because we can resonate with some of these songs that we remember so clearly. Almost every good song is born out of the struggle of the heart. It was true then, and it's true today. So I want to begin this summer in the Psalms by looking at Psalm 139. And I want to look at this because it brings us face to face with both the majesty of God and the intimacy of God. We see him as a grand God, and we see him as a personal God. This particular psalm was ascribed to David, and it was, it was assigned or addressed to the choir director. Again, this psalm was, was meant to be sung in public by a mass of people. The entire congregation was supposed to sing this psalm. You know, I, I got involved um, when Christ really became real to me back in the late 70s. And I joined a little home church group, and there's a bunch of them across the country. Uh, but they had literally taken some of these psalms and put them to music. And I was looking back the other day. I, I, I have a stack of memory cards. And I was like amazed. I memorized all those verses. And so I started going through these things. And so many were psalms. And I realized how many psalms were not written down here because I had sung the songs. And I memorized the word of God through music. We don't do that much anymore. But I realized what a, what a foundation that had laid in my own life because I simply sung the psalms. One of the reasons I like this particular psalm is that it tends to answer, for me, four questions that are critical to my own relationship with Jesus Christ. You see, if you're like me, most of my life has been trying to understand who God really is, not who people say God is, not what, what the Sunday school teacher told me that he should be like, or the things that I'm supposed to believe. I spent time to understand what does God say to be true about himself? And as a Christian, what does God think of me? You see, these are deep questions because they, they go beyond understanding simple facts about God. They touch the deepest part of my heart. And they address the very core of who I am. That's why these questions are so critical. And so I want to share some of these four questions with you this morning. So if you have your Bible, I want you to turn to Psalm 139. If you have the old-fashioned book which some of you do, and I love those things. I want you to to, uh, open it up exactly in the middle. If you put your thumbs in the middle, open it up, you'll hit the book of Psalms. Easy way to find it. Psalms is central to the Word of God because it's the heart 
that is central to God. The matter of the heart is important. The heart of the matter is the matter of the heart. And so, as we begin to look at Psalms, we realize that this really truly is, these are matters of the heart. They matter to God. They matter to me. So here's the first question. Out of 7.4 billion people on the face of this earth, June 2016, does God really even know me? Does he really know who I am? See, this is a question of significance. It's a question of significance. When was the last time you remember feeling insignificant? Do you remember? I remember two things. I remember the first time I set my foot on the campus at the University of Missouri in Columbia. 35,000 students, not including faculty and administration. You look up, you don't know. I knew 15 people in the entire city of Columbia. And just, just feel like this little bitty cog in this giant wheel. I'm just a number here. You go to chemistry class, you have six or 700 people in the class. I'm not used to that. It made me feel very insignificant. The other thought that came to mind was the first time I ever flew in an airplane. And I remember we took off. It was a, it was a, it was a clear day. We cruised about 15,000 feet for a while before we got higher. And at that level, that intermediate level, I remember looking down on the, on, on the roads in Kansas. Interstate 70 went from here to here. Little cars, little trucks, little bitty farmhouses. I just thought they looked like ants. You could just kind of squish a few and nobody would know the difference. I felt I'm one of those ants down there. I felt very insignificant. Let's take a look at uh, the first six verses here in Psalms 139. David's writing and he says this. He says, oh Lord, you have searched me. You have known me. You know when I sit down. You know when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down. You're acquainted with all of my ways. Even before there's a word on my tongue, behold, O oh Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind it before. You lay your hand upon me. Let me ask you a question. How many times on Friday, not yesterday, day before, how many times on Friday did you sit in your chair and get back up again? Do you keep track? Well, let's see, I think I, I sat down and put my socks on. I got up, and then I, well, I sat down and went to the bathroom. Then I got back up again. And then I sat down and had breakfast. Then I got back up again. And then I drove to work. But I did get up and went to Starbucks. But then I sat in my car again. How many times did you get up and sit down on Friday? God knows the answer to that question. On Friday 10 years ago. See, God knows that. God knows all of my thoughts. Dude, can you imagine that? God knows everything you think. Somebody asked me one time, what if somebody hooked some electrodes to your head and, and showed what you thought on the big screen up here? How would that make you feel? <laughs> Ashamed and embarrassed. and You just want to run. 
Do you know what? God, God sees those thoughts. God sees those thoughts, the good ones and the bad ones. He knows the, what I'm going to say before I even say it. He knows how the end of this message is going to turn out. I haven't gotten there yet. I, I have an idea, but you know what? I don't know how God's going to show up. He knows. He knows what I'm going to say before I even say it. In verse 6 here, he says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's, it's too high. I can't attain to it. Let me put that in English, guys. It blows my mind. I, I can't get a hold of this. Can you guys relate to that? God is so much bigger than we ever thought. He knows what I do when I do it. He knows the thoughts that I have that I never say. He knows what I'm going to say before I even say it. He said, this is too much. I, I can't get this. It literally blows my mind. Am I significant? Absolutely. I am significant. Here we see, and I'm going to use a theological term, it's called omniscience. In other words, that God knows all things. There's nothing that God doesn't know, including me. Not a thing that God doesn't know. And let me tell you the mind-blowing part of this. Not only does he see what I think, but he sees the good, he sees the bad, he sees the ugly, and dude, this is it. He loves me anyway. If the first part didn't blow your mind, wrap your head around this. That he knows the junk in my life, and he loves me anyway. Guys, that's the gospel right there. That's the good news. He loved me enough to send his son to die for me. To bring me back into this relationship that he originally created me for. To be connected to the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. He invited me back into that intimate circle. Yeah, I am valuable. And I am significant. This leads me to the second question. And that is this. Is God really, really always with me? You see, this is a question of security. Most of us, at times, some of us more than others, really struggle their whole lives with feeling alone and feeling abandoned. Those are very, very real deals. I want us to take a look at verse 7. David says, where shall I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to, to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand will lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness will cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light to you. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? You know what, guys? Back in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve tried to run from God. Remember what happened? They did something God told them not to do. And they discovered that they were naked. And they were ashamed. And they were afraid. And they hid from one another. And they hid from God. Didn't work out too well for them. 
Joshua chapter 7. There's a guy by the name of Achan. He tried to hide from God some things he stole. He couldn't hide it from God. In fact, the prophet Jonah asked the same question in this very room 30 days ago. He says, where can I go that God is not? Maybe that's Tarshish. Maybe it's the belly of the whale. That's where Jonah met God, in the belly of the whale. There's not a chance. You see, he, he says, if I ascend to heaven, if I make my bed in Sheol, Sheol is, is, is a Hebrew term for the place of the dead. He says, if I make my bed even down there, How does he say this? He says, you're there. You're there. The Hebrew language says, God. If I'm here, God. But if I go here, God. If I, if I take the wings of the dawn, God. He's here. He's here. When we're buried out of the sight of all living, we're still not out of sight of the living God. We can't hide ourselves from God's eye, not even in the grave. He says, if I take the wings of the dawn, how fast does light travel? Do you remember that? 12th grade science. <laughs> Gigawatts, that's electricity. Uh, 186,000 miles per hour. Can you get a grip on that? Okay, I, I think I'm pushing it if I'm doing 120. Don't tell my wife, oh, she's here. Sorry. <laughs> I think that's pretty fast. 186,000 miles per hour. How far is the moon from here? Long ways. 237 miles. It would take us 1.25 seconds to travel the speed of light from here to the moon. God. He says, if I take the wings of the dawn, I can't run from God. Not even darkness can hide me from God. He was a little kid. And I'll be honest here, and maybe some of you guys can relate. When I was a little kid, I was growing up, and, and uh, we were in a, a mobile home. And my bunk bed looked all the way through that little hallway down to the uh, living room. And my dad would leave his black shoes there. He'd shine them every morning, get ready to go to work. And in the twilight hour, just as the sun started to come up, I'd wake up, and I'd look at those shoes, and I swear they were moving. They were moving. <laughs> and I'd look at them real intently, and I'd see them start to morph a little bit, and I get scared. I put my head under my covers thinking, ah, I'm safe. They won't get me here. I peek out. Oh, they're still moving. And I thought I was safe. Kind of stupid thing to do. But you know, as adults, we do the same kind of stupid things. We do. You see, I say, well, if I do this sin in the dark, nobody's going to see me. Nobody's going to know. We think darkness hides our sin. That's why we have very low lighting at most of your bars. Your strip clubs, the alleys, the basements, it's all dark. We think no one can see. But David says, God can. God can see that. Nothing is hidden from God. Matter of fact, the writers of Hebrew 4 uh, says this. He says, and no creature is hidden from his sight. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him with whom we must give an account. You see, there's no real reason to hide from God unless we're trying to hide sin. 
There's no reason to hide from God unless we're trying to hide sin. But even then, God sees me before and behind. He knows it all. The dark and secret places where we sin are open before God. He sees it just as bright as daylight. Night and day, darkness and night, it's all the same to him. It's all the same. These verses refer to God's omnipresence. It's another big word. Basically meaning that there's no place where God isn't. There's no place where God is not. Because God is everywhere at once. Nothing, nothing is hidden from God. We can't escape God through death. Because you know what? God's on both sides of the grave. We can't escape God from distance. No man can travel fast enough to to outrun God. We can't escape God through darkness. Darkness can hide men from men. But darkness cannot hide men from God. No matter where you may go, God is already there. And here's the blessing in this, that there's no reason to hide except for sin. It's when I try to hide it, I feel guilty. I don't want God to see that. But again, who am I really fooling? Really? Who am I fooling? You see, as a a Christ follower, as a Christian with Jesus in my heart, God has forgiven me of my sin, past, present, and future. It's gone. It's been totally forgiven. God is not angry with me anymore. Man, what a gospel glorious thing that is. God's not just waiting to thump me. God is longing to connect with me and to bless me and connect with my heart. His presence wherever in the world I go is a very comforted thing. In fact, God is more committed to me than my my wife and my entire family put together. And that should bring me incredibly, overwhelmingly peace of mind, peace of heart. Third question. Did God intentionally create me like this? Warts and all. You see, this is a question of self-image. Have you ever looked in the mirror and, and you kind of look at your teeth and kind of look into your eyes and see the little mole here and the little mole here and my teeth aren't very straight? I say, God, why did you do that? I'm ugly. I don't look very good. I'm not, I'm not real. I wish I looked like Eric. Thin and dark hair. God, why did you make me like this? Maybe for some of you, you can't see very well. God, why, why did you make me like that? It's really a question of self-image. It's not what I did. Again, this gets to the essence of who we are. In your most brutal moments, Do you see yourself as ugly? Do you see yourself as a mistake that God made? Sometimes when you're curled up on the bed, yeah, maybe that's true. It really is an issue of self-image. Let's take a look at verses 13 through 18. David said, For you, God, formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. He says, I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it so very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, 
intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me. When as yet there was not even one of those. Wow. You see, in my opinion, these are probably one of the most, some of the most powerful verses in the entire Bible. This exposes God's omnipotence, God's unlimited power and ability to do anything. You see, David wrote this text in a day when the sonogram had not been invented yet. In fact, anatomy, embryology, they weren't even known. In the prenatal stages here, the development of a human being are written with phenomenal insight, clarity, and simplicity. Verse 14 says, You formed my inward parts, my organs. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. Knitting takes time. Taylor, do you knit? That's a yes. If you can't see your head there, yes, that's a yes. How hard is it to knit? It's hard. It takes time. It takes attention to detail. How long does it take you to make a, like a baby blanket? Uh, a, month. a month. Just to make a baby blanket. It took God nine months to make me. <laughs> you see, so often we think, well, we just kind of get the sperm and the egg together and it just kind of happens. It doesn't happen because God forms us. God is at work for nine months making this body work right. Making my esophagus connect to my stomach, connect to my intestine, and putting the spleen and the, all this together. Weaving the muscles and the tissues and the nerve endings and, and forming this thing I call a brain. It takes nine months for God to put this together. Ellie, when, when do you do? Sometime in July? July 28th. God is almost done. Ellie's saying, thank you, God. <laughs> thank you, God. He's almost done with this little bitty baby that's going to that's gonna look like someday you and I. He's at work. He's at work. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. My unformed substance. You see, God's eyes were focused on my unformed substance. In other words, what David's saying is, in my very few hours... Very first days of conception. When I was still an embryo, God was watching over me. Never absent. Never unconcerned. Always, always there. You see, it's, it's impossible to read these verses and say that an unborn fetus is not a human being. I can't do it. From the very earliest time, this unformed substance is a person. God is at work in the mother's womb, knitting and forming and shaping. And then, from the day that we're born, from my birthday to the day we die, God shapes our days so that we'll best draw near to God, that we can learn to love God, that we can learn to serve God. Look at Acts 17. Luke wrote the book of Acts, and he says this, Oh, next one. Oh, that's it. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of all the earth, having determined the allotted periods and boundaries of the dwelling place, that they should seek God 
and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he's actually not very far from each of us. What this verse is saying, in essence, is that he answers the question, why am I, why am I in America at this point in time? Ever, ever want to live in the old Wild West days? Or the days of the Roman gladiators? Or maybe the days of King Saul? Or King David? God said, God said I put you right here, right now, so that you could best come to know me. Now, in fact, he says that, uh, that we might feel our way towards God and find him. We're trying to connect with God that we can't touch, we can't see, we can't hear all the time. But he says, I'm not far. I'm not far. But I put you right here, right now, that you might best be able to find me. The God who is near places right here, right now, that I might best come to know God. That's God's sovereign providence. I'm so grateful for that. Look at verses 17 and 18, Psalm 139. He says, how precious are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them. Gosh, they're more than the sand. I wake up and I'm with you. Most of you guys, even living in the heartland here in Missouri, have been to a beach of some sort. I remember some of the beaches I've been to, some significant beaches. Actually, I had a little uh, container of sand I wanted to bring. It's a little vial, about this big round, about that tall. And it was, it was some sugar sand, very, very fine sand. And I was trying to guess how many grains of sand was in this little container. And I would say a couple hundred thousand probably. I mean, they were really small grains. And so let's say God thought about me, little old me, just once a day. There's a lot of people to worry about here. So God just kind of thought about me once a day. It would take over 550 years for him to think about me once a day in that little sand. Now, imagine yourself on a beach with sand as far as you can see. What is God saying about them? What he's saying, guys, is that God never stops thinking about you. How cool is that? The God of the universe who took nine months to create me, never, never, never stops thinking about me. Does that make you feel loved or what? It should. And even when we die and we awaken again in his presence, we're still with God even more than ever before. You see, God has assigned me infinite value. It's the value he placed on my life. So much so that it cost Christ's life to bring me back into this relationship with God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. I'm important to God because God says I am. You heard the phrase, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Well, the beholder here is a capital B. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Last question. Will God protect me from evil men? And this is a question of security. And at this point, the psalm just kind of turns and takes on a whole different tone. Let's read these next four verses here. He says, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They that speak against you with, with a malicious intent. Your enemies 
take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with, the, with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. You see, the things on David's heart here are pretty clear. He lists them out. He's the wicked, men of blood, God's enemies, those who hate God, those who rise up against God, my enemies. You see, six times in these few short verses, David refers to the enemies of God. In the strongest terms, not just, they weren't just moderate, disagreeing people with God. No, this, these were unashamed, hateful, blatant haters of God. Now, I want you to remember David's heart toward God. David longed to connect with God. David wanted to be like God. He wanted to imitate him. He wanted to be like him. This was not some kind of bloodthirsty, brutal plea. Not some kind of self-righteous prayer that he was trying to pray. In his zeal for righteousness, and David was known for this, he wanted God's help in protecting him from those who stood against the very things of God that he valued. Sometimes I think some of the insecurity in our faith comes from believing on one hand that we love God and that God knows us, and the other hand, if we have some deep relationships with some people who are really God-haters, we're kind of torn. A close companionship with haters of God will take a damaging toll on our spiritual life. It just will. The Bible tells us, and life has proved it out, that we will become like those we spend much time with. And David wanted no part of evil but he, what he wanted was part of God. He said, Lord, keep them away from me. Keep their influence away. Because, Lord, I long for you. I long for you, God. And then verses 23 and 24, last two verses of the chapter. David no longer looks up like he was in verses 1 through 18. He doesn't look around as he did the last few verses. Now he takes a look inward. He takes a look inward. He says, search me, oh God. Know my heart. Try me. Know my thoughts. And see if there be any, any hurtful, grievous way in me. Lead me, Lord, in the way everlasting. You see, he wanted to be a man of God at any cost. At any cost. And so he invites God to make a thorough examination of his own heart. He allows God access to the deepest places the places where my thoughts dwell, but I haven't articulated them yet. Places where my motives hide out in secret. Nobody knows. You see, he didn't ask God to do this so God would know the results. He asked God to do this so that David would know. You see, when I submit myself to the scalpel of a surgeon for exploratory surgery, I don't do that for the surgeon's sake. Dude, I do it for me. I want to know what's going on. I want to know what he finds. It's not about him, it's about me. And the same thing is true here with David when he cried out like this, Lord, search me and know me, O God. He wanted to know what the reason, God, what are you finding in my heart? Would you bring it to the surface? That is the cry of his heart. Do you want to be someone whose walk with Jesus is intimate and deep? 
Some people are very content going to church on Sundays because that's just what you do. That's what I did when I was growing up. That's what I do now. It's all okay. I know some people here. Got to lunch on Sunday. Life is pretty good. But do you really want to know God in the way that God wants to know you? In that very deep and intimate way. I can think about God all day long if I want to. I can think thoughts about him, but I don't have to engage my heart. And what David is asking God, would you search my heart? Engage my heart, God. Search it out. Find out what's going on under the surface here. Would you reveal that to me? Because God, I just want more of you. Say what, I want you to close your eyes. If you're serious about connecting with God, I want you to ask God to search your own heart this morning. I want you to ask Him to scrutinize your thoughts, your motives, examine them. Ask God to show you what needs attention in your own heart. We're not doing this for God's sake. This is for my sake. This is for your sake. Maybe you've never really met God on a personal level. At least not yet. Maybe you've been attending church trying to do the right things for years. When God has just been wanting to capture your heart. Maybe there's some idols that you're trying to hide and God's calling you out on them. Maybe there's something else that God wants to address in your life this morning. I want you to take the next few minutes and respond to God as he speaks to your heart. We're going to have the band come up and they're going to do some, some instrumental stuff, but I want you right there in the quietness of your own heart. No, no one looking around, no one thinking that I'm sitting beside so-and-so. Man, this is your time before God. I want you to allow him to search your heart. And I want you to respond to God however you want to. I want you to hear the voice of God through your own heart this morning. I love you guys. <laughs> I really do. And God loves you even far more. Make this time about you and about him. Thanks for listening to this week's message. LifePoint Church exists to engage, encourage, and equip through the gospel for the glory of God. Therefore, it is our prayer that the word of God would be an encouragement to your heart and lead you into a deeper relationship with Jesus Christ. If you would like to support the ministry, you can do so by visiting our website at thelifepointconnection.com slash give. May God bless and may your life point to Christ everywhere in every way.